Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Quick note about the foundation. Uh, we've begun work on researching anxiety and depression, uh, researching every possible treatment for both and uh, all conditions associated with them. It's called the Anxiety and Depression Codex. And to find out more about it and to where to donate, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. Today, my guest is Adam Boyko. He's the co-founder and chief science officer at Embark Veterinary and Associate at Embark Veterinary. He's also an associate professor at Cornell University. And but we're going to probably focus a lot on Embark and um, you know what it does in regards to dogs' DNA. So, Adam, thanks for coming. Thanks, Richard. Great to be here. Tell me about uh, why the interest in you know animals and in dogs and, and how did Embark come to be? I'm a biologist by training, and so I'm just really interested in diversity and um, you know how do you create species that have all of this you know different uh, functionality, you know different niches that they occupy and stuff. And and um, and dogs are sort of a classic example of an organism that you know that has just this massive degree of diversity and roles that uh, that they've evolved to fill. And you've got, you know, dogs that are 50 fold different in body size, you know, behaviors that are that are quite different. And knowing how you can genetically build organisms like that is just fascinating to me. On the flip side, I've always been a dog lover. And, um, you know, dogs do get uh, inherited disorders and and trying to figure out how can we make dogs healthy is a passion. And it's, it's a hard thing to do. Dogs have this great genome that researchers have been working on and have, you know, used to figure out uh, disorders such as eye disease and bleeding disorders and things like that. But a lot of the diseases dogs get, like certain cancers and heart disease and, you know, even just aging in general and behavior, where we know there are genes involved. I mean, different breeds 
age differently and behave differently and have different rates of cancer and heart disease and allergies and all that. We just don't have the data yet to, to pinpoint the exact mutations that cause this and get a, get a better understanding of it. And it's a, it's a big data problem. So, you know, very quickly when I realized how complicated everything is, you know, I wanted to switch to a big data mindset and, and how can we get more and more dogs involved in genetic health research um, to, to make these discoveries. So what does Embark offer? Is it DNA testing for your dog to look for possibly inherited you know, bad conditions or what's it about? Yeah, so so Embark is you know the, the first research grade dog DNA test where we took the actual platforms that researchers use at Cornell and elsewhere as the core of the technology. And um, and then we added to it, you know, specific markers that were known to be associated with different traits and diseases of interest so that we could test dogs, you know, on the same high density platforms that that researchers can then use to make discoveries. And so this has two, two benefits. You know, one of them is there's a lot more data for researchers to play with. But the other one is it makes the DNA test a lot more accurate and comprehensive because now instead of looking at hundreds of markers and trying to infer, you know, in general, uh, which breeds might be in a dog, um, you can look at hundreds of thousands of markers and get this very fine scale resolution of, oh, this part of this chromosome came from this breed. This part of this chromosome came from that breed. And you can look at things like inbreeding and you can look at things like relatedness. And so um, you can just get a lot richer picture of your own dog while in the process um, generating this really cool, unique data set that that is going to make dogs, you know, live happier, healthier lives. So, what is a what a dog's genes look like compared to ours in terms of length, number of chromosomes, genes? Any very, unusual very features? Of them? Yeah. So, so dogs and humans have have just about the same number of genes, around twenty two thousand. Dog genome is a little bit shorter. Um, there's there's a little bit less repetitive sequence in the dog uh, genome than the human genome. But, you know, dogs have 39 pairs of chromosomes. Humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes. Um, but but overall, dogs and humans genomes are, are quite similar, like 85% the same, more similar than human and mice genomes. So in that way, discoveries in dogs are, are more likely to, to um, be true in humans than discoveries in mice are. So it's a really fascinating organism, you know, not, not just because of the unique role it plays in our lives and this sort of unique selection and diversity encompassed by, by the hundreds of different, you know, purebred dog lines and, and all these mixed breed dogs that we have, you know, but also because it's kind of uniquely positioned to help understand human conditions as well. Well, I'm sure people have studied, you know, what or maybe you know, what's the difference between, let's say, a Rottweiler and a Chihuahua? You know, what, what's different about them that makes them what they are? So there's a there's a lot, actually. So that, you know, uh, and the, the reason why they're more extremely different than you see in most organisms is that these breeds were, you know, founded and, and then put into closed breeding populations, right? So there's there hasn't been this opportunity for gene flow to kind of like keep the population somewhat similar. And so you had this strong selection by breeders, you know, in Rottweilers for large size and Chihuahuas for small size. It started with a geographical separation as well. And, and you have these, because of the selection, you have genes of large effect, um, you know, genes that, um, you know, just a couple genes control coat type and, and you know, just a couple dozen genes control body size. So, so you know, th- those genes get divergently selected. And you also have what geneticists call genetic drift because, you know, overall, uh, even though there's a lot of Chihuahuas and a lot of Rottweilers, um, they started out with small populations and those populations are still close. So a lot of genetic drift happens as well. 
So the distinctiveness between the populations in dogs is, is much greater than what you see in, in natural populations of, of, of most species and, and in humans. But the reason why I ask is I would figure you'd gain information by looking at, again, what makes one breed different versus another genetically, because you said the diseases seem to ride along with these changes. So maybe right. there's a correlation association there that, oh, well, this gene, you know, it was bred uh, more heavily into these dogs, you know, to make their coats longer and woollier. And, but unfortunately, it's accompanied by this condition, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So kind of an earlier version of dog genomic discovery focused on grouping breeds according to phenotypes and saying, okay, you know, all of these breeds have short legs. What's the part of the genome that's different in these breeds than all of the breeds that have longer legs. And, you know, that that kind of analysis very quickly, you know, boom, right here in chromosome 18, there's a retrotransposable insertion that's shared by, you know, corgis and basset hounds and, and all these other short-legged breeds, right? And so, so that kind of genomic investigation works really well for things like coat type, curly coat versus straight coat. Uh, ear type. Does the dog have prick ears or does the dog have drop ears? You know, certain strong morphologies that are, you know, breed stereotype. It actually doesn't seem to work that well when you look at things like behavior or disease risk, where you can compare the breeds that have high levels of cancer or certain kinds of cancer to breeds that report lower levels. And you don't really get any clean biological signals from that. And, and so it's just that some breeds like golden retrievers maybe have an elevated cancer risk, but it's not that all golden retrievers, you know, get cancer. It's like maybe 50% of them get cancer. And the average for a dog is 30% of dogs, you know, wind up dying of cancer. And, and so for some breeds, it may be as low as 15%. But because of all that noise within the breeds, you really do, do need big data sets of individual dogs that you've analyzed and that you have the information of how long did this dog live? What did the dog get diagnosed with during its life? How did it respond? And so building up those data sets are kind of where we're at now in this, this second generation of large-scale canine genomic. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700-plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. So what, what are you looking for in the Embark test? What particular elements are you considering? We're trying to have a test that is as comprehensive as possible and, but, you know, grounded in where the science is today, but setting up the data so that we can expand genetic testing tomorrow. And in fact, update people as more results become available. So right now, you know, we, we test for all of the different coat color, you know, variants that are known to be important. Um, you know, whether your dog has curly coat, straight coat, long coat, short coat, we made a discovery about eye color. So this is the first ever uh, genetic discovery in a commercial DNA test outside of humans. Um, just asked owners, what color is your dog's eyes? And sure enough, Found a, found a gene associated with uh, dogs that had blue eyes, particularly Siberian Huskies. And so now that's reported on the, on the panel as well. 
And what's of interest to lots of people is this health, you know, information. And so we test for a dozen different bleeding disorders, two dozen different eye conditions, drug sensitivity, uh, which is, which is important for, um, you know, when you're, when you're treating the dog, Um, things like bladder stones and other kinds of conditions that are completely preventable if you know about them and, and, you know, and a small, but non-zero number of dogs, you know, one to 2% of dogs may suffer from it. And just knowing about it is going to, um, is going to change your dog's outcome. And so in fact, many people after taking an Embark test wind up changing the way that they care for their dog and uh, preventing things that are preventable if you know about them. Well, like, so what are some examples of conditions that people can do something about, or it's just that they have knowledge, but they can't really do anything about it to help the dog? So, so it runs the gamut, you know, so, so again, for, for bladder stones, you just feed the dog a different diet and the dog's not going to get the stones. For some of the eye disorders, you can give the dog supplements and you can delay the onset of it. Even for things where you don't know that there's nothing you can, you can definitively do to prevent the disorder, you know what to look out. And so you can diagnose it more cheaply and more effectively and your dog doesn't, you know, have to suffer for as long because you because you know what you're looking out for. In in many cases, the differences are just the environment that you set up for the dog, right? So um, intervertebral disc disease, obviously you want to keep the dog thin. That's going to help uh, prevent that from occurring in the dog. You can also, you, you should also try to reduce the amount of jumping that your dog does. So maybe you buy ramps for your dog. You know, the surgeries for that are very expensive and painful. So anything you can do to prevent the onset of the disease, knowing that your dog has a genetic predisposition for it. Well, what are the most popular tests requested or do they get, people get it in a bundle or, you know, how does so it that's work? The great thing is you, you get it in a bundle. You don't need to think about, oh, is it worth testing for this? Is it worth testing for that? Um, so we have this genetic platform that we can add everything that we want to test for onto the one platform and offer it for one price. And this is particularly valuable for people who own mixed breed dogs because they don't necessarily know all the breeds that are in their dog's mix. And so they don't know what the genetic risk factors are that they need to test for for their dog. Um, but even for, for purebred owners, you know, there's over a dozen tests that are relevant to Labrador retrievers. And if you were to buy each one of those tests separately, that would be an extremely expensive proposition. But here with just one cheek swab, we can run it on a comprehensive uh, array. You know, again, the, these research arrays encompass hundreds of thousands of probes and markers across the genome. And so it, it really is a, a different in kind uh, genetic test from what had previously been offered. If a dog's a mixed breed, what percentage of, you know, let's say I have a, I don't know, a Rottweiler and it has 10% bulldog in it. Is that enough to change it significantly where it'll be more of a bulldog phenotype or, you know, how do these percentage mixes of, of mixed breeds show up in the genetic? Yeah. So that's a, that's a great question. It depends wildly. In fact, if you had a litter of Rottweiler um, bulldog mixes, you would probably see uh, quite a variation in the phenotype, right? So if the offspring happened to have its 10% of bulldog overlap the mutation on chromosome 20 that that causes the white spotted coat so you see this you know this background white in uh, bulldogs then it's not going to have the rottweiler coat look it's going to have the bulldog coat look if it happens to overlap the uh, sort of droopy jowly drooly cheek locus uh, then again it's going to have a much more bulldog look although i guess rottweilers have that to some extent if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes you know so so looking at the dog, you can pick out individual traits that may have come from certain breeds, but because it's by chance, 
which genes came from which breed. You really, it's hard to, to, first of all, know all the breeds that go into a dog, but also it's really hard to estimate the, the fraction of the genome that came from the dog. And so my brother's dog, which is clearly a, a pit mix, is actually only half pit and a quarter of its genome is golden retriever, which you can't tell by looking at Harley at all. Um, but Harley loves catching Frisbees, loves retrieving, and actually is a carrier for a golden retriever specific ichthyosis. So we know, yes, there's, you know, definitely her genome was impacted by this golden retriever ancestry that you, you know, nobody at the shelter would have guessed, nobody around the water cooler guessed until the genetic results came back. So are these, um, do these have to be prescribed by a veterinarian in order for people to use, or is this just commercial kits you can use? Right. So this is just something you can go online, go to embarkvet.com or Amazon and, um, or Chewy and order a kit. It gets shipped to your, your house. Um, you activate the kit, uh, swab your dog. It's just a cheek swab, mail it back, and then you'll get an email telling you when your results are ready and you can log in and you can learn, you know, all about, uh, you know, not just the ancestry of your dog, but also health traits, relatives. It's, it's really cool. Um, uh, I, if you, I think the Amazon reviews are, are higher than they are for any other, not only dog DNA tests, but I think any other DNA test. people really seem to want to know more about their dogs, almost more than they want to know about themselves. How does this care to, uh, you know, like 23 and me for people? It seems like there's the same thing for dogs. You can swab them, send it in and see like their, you know, their part this and part that. Does this encompass that or is it separate? Yeah. So under the hood, the technology is very similar, right? DNA is DNA. And so these, you know, research grade chips that that we use are, are the same platform, except these are built on dog DNA and not human DNA. Um, so, so in that, you know, in that sense, the specifics about it are different, but the, the, the general technology is the same. And then the idea that owners can go back on and can, you know, fill out surveys about their dog, update us about their dog's medical history. And that in turn goes into scientists' hands to make new discoveries. It's, it's in that sense, very similar to the 23andMe model. And, you know, I know researchers at 23andMe, they're, they're really proud of the research they've been able to do there in, in all sorts of, uh, you know, different areas, Parkinson's disease and depression, you know, and, and so it's, it's a really rich data set now that they've been able to collect there about probably 20 million human genomes they've got in their, in their data set. What are some very mysterious parts of the dog genome that you guys are looking to, to examine? You know, how much of it is known? How much of it is still unknown? Oh, that's a really interesting question. So... Some of the latest advances in dog genetics in the last couple years have been these technologies that have enabled us to fill in a lot of gaps in the dog genome. So, you know, dogs, like other species, have repetitive sequences in their genome, and those traditionally have been gaps. They haven't been able to be analyzed with the older sequencing technologies, um, but now there's, you know, newer ones out. And so, so they've given us a glimpse into those. We've been able to piece it together better. And so, you know, one of the things is our platform keeps evolving. And so we've added in more genetic information in those regions um, so that we stay on the cutting edge of science. And so we can, so we can see, oh, this part of chromosome three that we didn't have before. Now let's, let's add it to the test and see uh, if it comes back associated with anything. And so, so that's, that's pretty exciting. There's also, you know, as I alluded to before, lots of complex diseases and traits where it's really not that the genome itself is mysterious. It's that the genetics behind it are complicated. And so therefore you need really big sample sizes to kind of find those more subtle uh, impacts that lead to it. And, and so, you know, focusing on building up the, the genetic database as well as the phenotypic database by 
you know, asking owners to tell us about their dogs in new and interesting ways, and then feeding that back to make discoveries is, is it's a full-time job and it's a, it's a really exciting one. Is anyone looking at dog epigenetics and do they seem to have the same amplification or upregulation, downregulation that people do? Yes. So there's been some really interesting studies out of Steve Horvath's lab where they've where they've actually built conserved epigenetic clocks across mammals and, and you can run it on dogs and you can see, you know, my if training the model with human data, it's predictive for dogs and, you know, vice versa, training on dogs is predictive for humans. Of course, the rates are different and the actual curves can be, you know, slightly different. But uh, yeah, looking at the the methylation pattern of a genome can lead to a very accurate estimate of how old a dog is or a human is. Um, and so so that's pretty exciting. And the, and the question is, do these methylation patterns predict anything about, you know, future disease risk? behavior, you know, a whole gamut of things. I mean, the degree to which they're associated with gene expression is is high. And so you expect that, you know, this might be a way to make discoveries in these complex traits and diseases that have so far been resistant to robust discovery just using genomic data alone. Well, very good. Where can people find out more about Embark? Where can they go? Well, I encourage everyone to, to go onto the website, embarkvet.com. It goes into the history of Embark. It was founded by my brother and I, who together had been researching dogs for over a decade, you know, including village dogs, these sort of uh, random bred dogs, you know, throughout most of the world, which I argue is kind of the natural dog. And then what we what we have done since then, um, building purebred populations has certainly made dogs a, an exciting species and a special species, um, but, it, but it shouldn't be confused with what it means at its root to be a dog. <laughs> so yeah, I would, yeah. And, you know, there's been some news articles too of, you know, various discoveries that our scientists have been able to make and as well as, you know, various efforts um, that our team puts in just to, um, you know, improve dog welfare in general. Oh, one last thing. Are you going to um, be doing work on cats or is dogs <laughs> plenty of work and there's no time? Right now, that's been the case um, that with dogs, there's plenty of work and there's no time. I mean, I uh, I like cats too. Scientifically, I think dogs are more interesting, but I know cat researchers that, that, that say cats are more interesting. So it's a bit of a scientific debate right now. But I do hope that um, DNA testing for cats um, gets better and better like it has uh, for dogs. It's a really exciting opportunity for, for pet owners to kind of share more you know, about their, about their companion and be able to offer the the best care and insights for them. Well, very good. Well, Adam, again, thank you for coming on the podcast. And it's a, a very cool niche type of thing that you're working on in Embark. So Thanks. thank you. Thanks, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.